Hi, I'm Dan Krinas, host of the Leader of Learning podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey guys, this is Greg Goins. I want to take just a few minutes of your time to thank you for listening to the Reimagined Schools podcast. Your support for this podcast means the world to me as I have the opportunity to talk to some of the top educators, innovators, and change agents in the field of education. And the mission remains clear, folks. We want to create better schools for kids. But now I want to come to you directly as loyal listeners of the podcast and ask for your help as we hopefully take Reimagined Schools from a podcast that comes out each week to a movement that will be regular conversation around your school. So how are we going to do that? Well, it's going to come from you, and it's going to come from the ground up as you are in your schools and you are there ready to do the work to create better schools for kids. So this week I'm going to ask you to do a little favor for me. I want you to share this podcast with your school superintendent, your principals, and teachers throughout your school district. Help us spread the message by sharing links on social media or by telling colleagues about your favorite guests and ideas. For those not on social media, maybe you can send an email with the podcast links from the Reimagined Schools podcast or from one of our 11 listening platforms that you can find where podcasts are available. Why not even make a QR code to put up in your teacher's lounge with a link directly to podcast episodes for those that are not connected educators? Better yet, Maybe it's time to form your own podcast study group. Just like a book study, a lot of districts now are forming podcast study groups, and they're using the Reimagined Schools podcast to spark those conversations. And who knows? I just might pop into a Zoom meeting with your podcast study group. All you have to do is DM me or send me your information at drgreggoins at gmail.com. So it's time to think differently, and it's time to make a difference. Please help me this week spread the word Let's reimagine schools together. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagine Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. My special guest today is A.J. Giuliani, an award-winning blogger, speaker, and author of multiple books, including the bestsellers Empower and Launch with co-author John Spencer. His most recent book is The PBL Playbook, a step-by-step guide to actually doing project-based learning. A.J. Giuliani is a strong advocate for the inquiry-driven education model with a focus on design thinking and project-based learning. He's also an expert in implementing Genius Hour and 20% Time in the Classroom, and he's the author of a fantastic book, Inquiry and Innovation in the Classroom, Using 20% Time, Genius Hour, and PBL to Drive Student Success. So you want to check out all of AJ's books. They're all fantastic, and you can buy those wherever books are sold. AJ is a full-time speaker and is currently faculty for the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. He's also a former English teacher, football coach, and most recently served as Director of Learning and Innovation 
for Centennial School District in Pennsylvania. In this episode, AJ asks one simple question. Are we preparing kids today to be cooks or chefs? This conversation is based on one of AJ's popular blog posts that you can find at ajgiuliani.com. In this case, a cook follows the recipe while a chef takes the menu to the next level by taking chances and inventing something that is truly special. All the more reason to move away from recipe-based learning in our classrooms. If you have an interest in learning more about project-based learning or how to get started with Genius Hour or 20% Time, then this episode is for you. If you have questions for AJ or myself, just find this episode on my Twitter feed, at Dr. Greg Goins, hit the reply button, and send us your message. We would love to talk with you. With that, folks, I hope you enjoy this conversation with AJ Giuliani. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. My special guest today is a popular speaker and author. Uh, he specializes in best practices for classroom innovation. Welcome in, AJ Giuliani. How are you, sir? Hey, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Looking forward to doing this and uh, just uh, excited to, to talk shop with you, man. Get into it. You know, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. I think you're probably one of the first people that I followed you really got me excited with things like 20% time and learning by choice. And, of course, I want to dive into all that uh, if we have the time. But uh, you have some exciting things happening in your personal life. Uh, you're no longer working for a school district. You've taken the plunge, and you're out there speaking and writing and doing all that good stuff. So why don't you fill us in a little bit? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I worked uh, at Centennial School District as the director of learning innovation. Before that, I was the director of tech and innovation at Centennial. Uh, awesome team, amazing people. I think we had our best year yet. Our math scores rose by 31% in one year in the middle school. I mean, we just, we had fantastic, innovative things happening. Um, and, you know, had just uh, gotten to the point where there's a bunch of different opportunities uh, with uh, University of Pennsylvania, Graduate School of Education, where I'm doing some work with, uh, a bunch of uh, opportunities speaking and consulting with some different school districts. Uh, in different places. And then, you know, in my own uh, personal family life, I got four kids. Uh, I want to see them play sports and be able to hang out with them. And uh, uh, my wife's a coach. And so the fall is crazy for us. <laughs> She's a high school varsity field hockey coach. So, you know, I, I think the timing worked out really well. Um, and just being able to partner with some different people and do some of that work and do a little more with, at the university level. So it's exciting. I'm still working with schools and working with districts and working with teachers uh, every day, I'm running the PBL Academy, which is an online project-based learning, kind of uh, almost like a PLC, right, professional learning community. And we've got, you know, over 400 different uh, teachers and school leaders from around the country. Actually, internationally, we have eight different countries uh, participate in that. So just getting to work with people and, and uh, you know, staying in the mix. But, yeah, it was a big change for me. Right? I've been working in public education as either a teacher or instructional coach or a school leader for a long time. And, uh, you know, for that first, uh, you know, day after Labor Day, not being in an actual school, it was, it was a big change for me, you know, and, uh, something that is scary and, and on downright just kind of like, you know, anxious, uh, to kind of see what happens next. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the family piece to this because obviously it's very important to have their support. But uh, when you think about wearing your dad cap, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about Generation Z and how kids are different. Uh, you basically have a lab right there at home because you have a lot of school-age children. Um, 
you think about this this generation of kids and and how we provide educational service to them, what are some of the lessons that maybe people still don't get in working with this with this young generation of kids in the classroom? I, I think the biggest thing, all right. Uh, so I have a ten year old, an eight year old, a five year old, and a four year old. So three out of four are in school. <laughs> and um, I think the biggest thing is that a lot of educators realize this, but aren't sure of how to deal with it. We're in this attention battle. And, and I say that because for a long time, like as a teacher for a long time, I got my students' attention through necessity. I would, I would, you know, have the quiz tomorrow or I'd have a phone call home or I'd have, oh, you're not paying attention to a hundred point project, a 200 point project. And, um, you know, for a long time, necessity kind of worked. Then all of a sudden these kids got access to any kind of information, any type of, uh, connecting, communicating, any type of entertainment that they want in the palm of their hand or in their iPad or on their device and the way that they got attention was through interest. And so now we have this big attention battle, which is outside of school, a lot of our students' attention goes through things that they're interested in. We may not agree with some of those things and screen time and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I definitely have those battles in my house. But it, it then goes to school and all of a sudden they have to pay because of necessity. Here's the big kicker of it all is they typically in schools nowadays, have that phone in their pocket, have that device in front of them. And so now if we're just trying to grab their attention through necessity, we're going to lose that attention battle. And so the big thing I, I talk about this a lot is that in order for kids to learn, they have to pay attention. There's no other way to learn, right? For any type of, if you look at the science of learning, right? We have attention, right? And then all the way storage, encoding, all those different types of things until we're having retrieval of that practice. If you don't have attention, you don't have those three other steps. The science of learning never kicks off. And so we lose the battle before we even started if we keep on trying to get kids' attention through necessity and don't tap into things like interest and passion and purpose and relevance and meaning. And I, I think that there needs to be more conversation around that because it doesn't mean using like a shiny, fancy tech tool. That may work as an intention getter the first couple of times, but as soon as that wears off, how are we going to tap into that and win that battle? And, you know, I think we can both agree that the approach has to be different. Uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit about PBL in your book, the PBL playbook, but I love the fact that you identify yourself as, as an advocate for the inquiry driven education model. Can you talk about what that means and, and why that's so important to your work? Yeah, I mean, you know, inquiry just means starting with curiosity, starting with the question. Uh, and I think all great learning starts there, right? Um, sometimes it's the teacher asking a great question, or sometimes it's the student asking a great question. Um, but if we don't have inquiry, then what we basically have is is recipe-based learning, which is somebody telling you to do something, and you follow the directions and doing it, to the best of your ability or to the place that you want to get the grade. Uh, and that's what that learning looks like. And for a lot of us, that's what our schooling looked like. Uh, for me, the first couple of years of teaching, I was a recipe teacher, right? Even when I did project-based learning with my students, I would give them 16 steps to follow in a rubric that was so specific that I would get back 28 of the exact same thing. When you start with the inquiry, that doesn't happen. 
And so that's why I'm such a huge fan of things like Genius Hour and 20% Time, which honestly are just fancy words for inquiry-based education and inquiry-based learning. And um, I, I really believe that's that it's at the heart of most of the powerful learning experiences we have. And I love this idea of recipe learning. And, and you've put out some great uh, videos and blog posts about this idea of do you want to be a chef or do you want to be a cook? Yep. And and uh, I, I just find that fascinating. And for those maybe not familiar with that video, can you just kind of give us a brief, brief synopsis on that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we talk about um, the difference between chefs and cooks is a chef is somebody who follows a recipe that somebody created um, or a, you know, I mean, or a, a cook can follow a recipe or they can do a recipe with their own unique twist or they can do a recipe with innovation. A chef is the one actually creating the recipe. And so our goal as teachers and leaders is to be chefs. And our goal is to have our students be chefs, kind of creating their own learning experiences. That doesn't mean that you don't start out as a cook. Everybody starts out as a cook, right? And so I, I think sometimes we miss that point that a chef doesn't become a chef by just making up the uh, recipe for pizza, you know, one day. They experiment, they try other people's recipes, then they innovate based on those recipes and, and kind of become a cook with their own flair. And then finally they become a chef. The question I always pose is, what are we doing on that continuum of cook to chef? Are we moving along and getting our kids and ourselves closer to creating our own recipes and learning in life? Or are we just staying down at the bottom there and just following step-by-step verbatim? And I think that's a great um pathway to learning through PBL. And you talked about the PBL Academy. Uh, your most recent book is the PBL Playbook, a step-by-step guide to actually doing project-based learning. I, I'm seeing a, a shift or momentum or whatever you, however you want to describe it. More and more people are starting to embrace this idea of project-based learning, but it is difficult. And a lot of people just don't know where, where to get started. This book actually walks you through the process. Talk about um, why that book was important to you and how have you seen PBL really, uh, really take off even more so over the last few years? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a great community of teachers, uh, doing project-based learning, you know, led in part from the Bucks Institute. It's now PBL works. Uh, you've got folks like Ross Cooper and Aaron Murphy who created and wrote hacking, uh, project-based learning, uh, and there's just a, a lot of people out there that are doing really good work around project-based learning. You know, I wrote the book, the PBL playbook, because I worked with teachers every single day who wanted to get started with project-based learning, but didn't know how to start. They were looking for a lot of different things. How do I scaffold it? How do I structure it? How do I manage it? How do I assess it? Um, what does it look like in my Spanish class versus my second grade classroom versus my physics class? And so basically, uh, the PBL playbook, I sent out a, um, an email, a questionnaire to, uh, the 70 some thousand people in, uh, in my email list on our community and got tons of responses back and end up putting 47 of those projects inside this book with real teachers talking from every grade level, every different type of subject about what project based learning looks like in their classroom and what they've learned going through the process. And, uh, you know, what I really wanted that book is for the everyday teacher, the person that is looking for moving from traditional assessments, um, from, you know, multiple choice, from short answer, from those different types of things and wants to get started in PBL, that they could take that book and it's going to help them shift 
student. It's going to give them activities to do to get their students talking in the classroom. It's going to give them one to two day project activities uh, to kind of ramp up what this learning looks like before they really jump in headfirst and create a project-based learning unit. And, and the whole notion really was taking them from the cook to the chef level throughout the book, right? If, if that, if we're going to stick with that analogy there. So, um, you know, I'm really excited about the feedback from the, from the PBL playbook. I've done a number of different book studies, working with a number of different school districts, uh, kind of doing in-person PBL academies with their school districts as they're reading the book. And what I've seen is that uh, when you give teachers an idea and then also some structure and some examples behind it, they do amazing things with that. And it, it doesn't take much. It just takes something for them to hook onto and that, you know, that teacher brain gets going and boom, they're creating, they're, they're collaborating that type of thing. And so that's what we're hoping to do with the PBL playbook. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about the teacher's role in the PBL process, and we may not spend enough time talking about uh, the role that kids play, the enthusiasm that they have and the opportunities they have to be problem solvers. For someone unfamiliar with what that looks like in the classroom, can you kind of take us into a school, tell us what that looks like, and kind of share uh, share that enthusiasm that kids have once they know they're doing something greater than just sitting at a chair and doing seat work? Yeah, I mean, I, um, one of the projects that always sticks to my mind is a pinball project that Ross did with his um, fourth grade students. I love it because you know, the kids are learning about force and motion and energy. And yeah, we could watch a video on that or, you know, we could talk about it, but what better way than to do it, right? And so um, to learn about force and motion and energy and hit those standards, and then to also hit the English language arts standards in your classroom by doing a pinball project, having kids create what a pinball machine would look like, blueprint it out, create a model of what that looks like and then actually make the pinball machines that real people are going to play. That's the excitement. It comes from this authentic process of making something for an actual person, for an actual audience, not just making something for my teacher who's going to grade me or for my parents to hang on the fridge, right? That is, that is where the excitement comes in. So you walk into a classroom like that, it may seem noisy. It may seem that there's a lot of different types of things going on. And there are because kids are at different stages of the project. They're conferencing with the teacher. They're kind of, you know, failing left and right and improving and iterating upon those failures. But ultimately the learning that is happening throughout that process almost can't be measured in the same way that we do with the traditional assessment. Um, but through the conversations and through the authentic project and task and product that they create, that's where kind of the excitement and the learning comes out. And that's, you know, the, what it looks like just in that one example, but really um, th there's so many different ways that we can take content that a state or learning organization or country says that we have to learn and really say, okay, if we have to teach this and kids have to learn this, What's an authentic way that we can do that with them creating and making something? My guest today is A.J. Giuliani. You can follow him on Twitter at A.J. Giuliani, and be sure to check out the website at ajgiuliani.com where he has some wonderful resources to help you be more innovative in your classroom. And, you know, A.J., uh, going back to some of the earlier books, you know, your collaboration with John Spencer and Power and Launch were both very powerful. And, and the thing I really enjoyed about Launch was it really – took me into a deep dive with design thinking for really the first time. And 
I, I still think there are a lot of people out there that are a little confused. You know, what's the difference between design thinking and deeper learning or whatever the next buzzword is? How do you describe design thinking in the classroom? So, yeah, design thinking is basically a framework for the creative process, right? So you can do creative work and project-based learning. You can do creative work and inquiry-based learning like Genius Hour. What design thinking does is give you a process, a framework for how to handle that, right, of what that looks like. And specifically why it's so powerful is that it's used in every industry, right? It's used all over the place, right? How does Apple design their new phone? Design thinking process, right? You know, how does Amazon recreate what the Whole Foods store experience looks like? It's going through uh, the design thinking process. It's basically design thinking. The way we talk about it in launch uh, is just a couple of different steps. You first start out with this look, listen, and learn, this empathy step where you're not starting out with a specific thing you're going out to do. You're starting out thinking about who you're creating for, right? And so if you're creating that pinball machine, you were thinking about who your audience is for the pinball machine. That's your first step. After the look, listen, and learn, then you begin to ask questions. Here's the inquiry, right? You're curious. You start asking questions about your audience, who you're creating for, who you're making it for, about the product, those different types of things. That leads into an understanding of the process or the product. After you start to understand what you're actually going to make and create, then you begin to navigate ideas. That's brainstorming on steroids, right? You're navigating ideas, which means you're not just coming up with ideas. You're also thinking about which ones could work given the context of what you're creating in. From there, you create a prototype. It doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be something that real people can interact with. Because after you create a prototype, you share that with an audience and you begin to highlight and improve and fix and iterate on what you created. And then ultimately, you release that uh, kind of fixed up and iterated and improved upon uh, prototype to the world. And so that's the design thinking process. It happens in healthcare. It happens in nonprofit. It's all over the place. It works really well in education for running a project-based learning experience, for running a genius hour experience, for creating curriculum, for thinking about our strategic plans, for thinking about our budget process, all those different types of things. It works really well as a framework. You know, I recently had an opportunity to speak to a group a couple of weeks ago, and, and I was talking about professional development and incorporating 20% time, uh, allowing principals to incorporate 20% time as, as part of their PLCs. Uh, because too many times we get focused on, you know, test scores or rankings or whatever the case may be. Uh, but uh, I'm a huge fan of 20% time and trying to incorporate that. What is it about allowing people to focus on passion projects, whether it's adults in PD setting or kids in the classroom, that gets people fired up and, and taking more ownership about, about their learning? Yeah, I think you, you, know, you said it right there. When you give people choice, the research is, is very clear what happens, right? So you could look at choice theory. Uh, you could look at the studies in, in Drive uh, by Daniel Pink that, that he brings in. You could look at uh, flow concept, any of these different types of concepts. There's lots of them out there. In fact, if you go to ajgiuliani.com slash research, I break down all the research on this. But basically, this is how it works. If you provide choice to someone in their learning, in their process, what happens is that we naturally have more ownership. Right. And so as soon as we have choice, then we feel like a sense of ownership over that learning process or whatever we're making or doing. 
And as soon as you feel that sense of ownership, there's an opportunity to feel empowered. And the definition of empowered that we use is that empowering people is allowing them to use the skills and knowledge that they have or that they're creating uh, to work on something that they're passionate interest about, something that's purposeful to them. And if you take choice and ownership and empowerment and you line that up, the last thing that comes out of that are deeper learning experiences. Uh, and so there's a lot of research to, to support that. Um, but more importantly, I think we've all seen that in our own lives, that when we have some choice in what we're doing, we feel like, all right, I, I can own this, right? I'm, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on it. It's actually going to go beyond 20% time because I like what I'm doing. I'm interested in it, right? And uh, that snowball continues to build up. And so I love the idea of 20% time in professional development uh, because a lot of times teachers are already doing that themselves, just not in the, in the construct of school. And so that 20% time actually is like 120% time, right? Because they're already doing that outside of school in their lives as a teacher looking for those different types of things. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. And, and I think the ownership piece is, is certainly, um, you know, very telling. If, if we want to get people excited about what's happening in their school, we have to give them an opportunity to have more of a voice, just like kids. So I think that was well said. So um, you probably get this a lot because I do. I think Genius Hour is a wonderful idea, but I often get questions from um, teachers at higher grade levels. How does Genius Hour look at the middle school level? How does it look at the high school level? And you don't have to call it Genius Hour. You can call it an innovation lab or whatever you want to call it, just providing opportunities for kids. So can you kind of talk about maybe how it looks different at each grade level from elementary, middle to the high school? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, um, a lot of times people get stuck on the notion that Genius Hour has to be kids doing literally anything they want to do, which is nice. And as an English teacher, I was able to do that because I was, my kids were still going to be hitting speaking, writing, reading, listening standards, learning whatever they wanted to learn about because they're going to be documenting the process. If you're a biology teacher, your genius hour is going to have to be something focused on your biology con <laughs> like content. It's just, so I think a lot of times we get overwhelmed with the choice aspect. Choice doesn't mean complete freedom. It just means choice. It means options. It means, um, that it's okay to have some constraints. And so, you know, if you're in a subject area, you may have some constraints around what that looks like. You also may have some time constraints. You don't need to do a whole semester. You may just have six days in a row that you have, right? There, there may be different, you know, time constraints that you can do. At the younger grade levels, where you're trying to combine a lot of subjects together, that's the beauty of Genius Hour is that yeah, maybe you're given an hour a week or whatever for your kids, but they're hitting on standards that you've been covering all week and want to continue to cover and master. So for me, I think that the, the questions that I get, and I'm sure the questions you get a lot of time are more around the logistics of how to run it, given the time constraints and curricular constraints that they have. And for that, it's different for every teacher. It's different for every subject depending on, on what they have. You know, I've seen it run in high schools where they have 45-minute classes. I've seen it run in high schools where they have block classes. I've seen it run in every single subject area, 6 through 12, and in every single grade level, K through 5. 
it can be done. You know, I, there was a fourth grade class that really wanted to do it. They didn't have the time in their schedule because of testing things. And so they partnered with the librarian and did it during library, right? So there's lots of different options. I think we, we have to think a little bit creatively around um, how we can fit it in, given our curricular constraints and time constraints. As someone who's now uh, traveling and speaking full time, uh, I'm sure you've had a lot of time to think about this, but what is the A.J. Giuliani elevator speech or what is the manifesto that you share with with folks when you go out and you talk about these things? Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's different for for everyone. But, you know, I, I truly believe that if we can empower our learners and empower our teams, you know, if we're school leaders, then there's going to be better learning experiences. And if there's better learning experiences, then kids and staff have better opportunities. And, and that ultimately is what education is all about, is that we want education to be the bridge to opportunities, no matter your economic background, no matter your social uh, background, no matter um, where you're coming from or what you've done or any of those different types of things, you could show up in a school setting and have opportunities and have kind of like bridge that gap between the haves and have nots. I think that's what a powerful education experience provides. Um, sadly, it doesn't always look like that. You know, sadly, sometimes it just looks like jumping through hoops, right? And, and being compliant. And so the shift really is how do we move from that compliance model, which we were kind of alluding to a little bit earlier in the conversation to engaging and ultimately empowering. And, uh, we can really do that in ways that actually aren't too difficult, um, in ways that are actually doable. And the cool part is that schools are doing it all around this country and all around this world already. So there's lots of models uh, to look at. Uh, there's lots of chefs out there where we can follow their recipes to get started before we become chefs ourselves. And I think a lot of times there's this misconception when we talk about reimagining schools or reinventing schools that I'm advocating for blowing up the current system and starting over. And that's not the case at all. There are a lot of great things happening in our schools, but there are also areas in which we can improve, PBL being one of them, design thinking being one of them, adding 20% time off opportunities. So as you think about uh, – I, I get this question a lot too. If you could build a school from scratch, what would it look like? And that's – I mean, that's a really tough question to answer in just a quick soundbite. But, I, you know, I've referenced you a lot, and I think a lot of the things that you advocate for would certainly want to be in that future-ready school. So – uh, you know, I think about thoughts for your own kids. What kind of school do you want your own kids to be in? What do we have to do to make some of these changes? We're still talking about uh, Genius Hour, and I still have people that have never heard of it before, which still continues to amaze me. But uh, we have to get people more connected. We have to get people excited about trying new things. What are your general thoughts about the future of education? So I think a lot of pressure has been put on K through 12 to change what they're doing and not nearly enough has been put on higher ed. Um, you know, part of the reason that we focus on GPA so much as a K through 12, as just a K through 12 grouping, the reason we focus on GPA so much is because colleges want GPA. The reason we give SATs and ACTs and prepare kids with tests that look like them is because colleges want SATs and ACTs. And so, um, People have asked me that question before, like, what is, what is your perfect school look like? And I always say, well, what's the context, <laughs> right? Is it, is it on Mars and, and there is no colleges to go to, or is it here in the United States of America where we have a certain career 
uh, workforce requirements and certain college uh, requirements that we're bound to. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's not so much thinking about, as you alluded to, kind of blowing up our current module. It, it's really thinking about like, what's the stuff that we've done for a really long time that have worked well? I always, I always go back to four things. If a learning experience is human, if it's social, if it's meaning centered, if it's language based, it's probably a powerful learning experience, probably an engaging learning experience. The difference is in 2000, in 1990, in 1980, that looks very different. Those four things, human, social, meaning center, language based look very different. How can we hit those things in 2019 and beyond? Right. Um, and, and for me, for my own kids, what I want them to do is stay curious, you know, and, and, and that to me is the scariest part of growing up in an education system that oftentimes doesn't value curiosity as you get older. It values compliance. And so the main thing I would do if I was creating a school from scratch is have it value curiosity and have it value instructional equity, you know, um, you know, really focusing on those key things of what that looks like and having teachers that really want to build those learning relationships as a mentor mentee as a as a guide on the ride there with students who are excited about their content area who are excited about what they're teaching because that enthusiasm is so paramount to making a great learning experience you can tell from any kid that you talk to if their teacher is jacked up and if their school is jacked up about learning or if they're just going through the motions and so for me uh, as somebody who has kids in the education, uh, you know, system is just starting out. I just want them to stay curious. You know, you see stats like 84% of high school students have, have high levels of stress and anxiety. I don't want that to happen. Right? I don't want that to happen to my kids, right? I want it to be 84% of students that are high levels of curiosity, right? Like that would be the goal, uh, you know, for the learning experience. So there's lots of different ways to do that given the contents of where you are, given where you live, uh, and given the resources that you have at your disposal. And I think that's what makes our kind of educational experience very exciting is that people can do it in all different types of ways. And I think we should continue to do that. There is no perfect way. There is no, there is no kind of manual that says this is the best way to do it. We're all learning our own best ways to do it. And I think that's very well said. And as we wrap up our time together, first I want to thank you for your time. Again, I, I'm a huge fan and uh, folks, check out AJ Giuliani's website. Check out the books. Uh, I mean, these are, are step-by-step guides as to how to be more innovative in your classroom. So um, as we wrap it up, just kind of um, if someone wants to have you in their school district or at their conference or maybe even information about the PBL Academy, uh, how can you direct them to the right place? Yeah, I think if they just go to ajgiuliani.com, you get all the information there. Um, you know excited about a lot of different things we're working on, but I, I think I'm most excited when uh, I'm working with teachers and school leaders and, uh, and organizations to, to focus on all those things we just talked about today, right? Which is uh, different for everyone, uh, but also similar to everyone, you know, having choice, having ownership, feeling empowered, and really thinking about the practical process to make that happen. Because you know as well as I do that it's great using all these terminology and buzzwords and all those different types of things. Uh, but I think that the work really needs to be focused on the work. 
and not just the theory around it or the research around it, but the practicality of how to do that in a classroom with 30 kids of all different types of uh, learning levels and abilities and all those different types of things. And, and that is the exciting part for me working on those things. So yeah, ajgiuliani.com is a really good spot. Uh, all the books, information you need will be there. And I look forward to, to contacting and, and just communicating with you. I'm also on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those places at ajgiuliani. So there's not too many uh, ajgiuliani out there. So I was able to <laughs> snag those usernames at all those spots as well. Well, again, thanks for your time. It was a great conversation. And, folks, that's a wrap. Be sure to follow AJ. Uh, go to the website. Check out the books. And, as always, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.